Thank you. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 28. Our passage today is the end of the chapter, verses 18 through 22. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Father, I pray that your word speaks to us, speaks to me, and speaks through me today, that your Holy Spirit would give us all ears to hear, myself included, Lord, and that you would wash us and conform us to the image of your Son today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, these past few weeks have taken us in a few different directions, with Jay preaching for me last week when we were out of town. Thank you, brother. And then the week as the fair was starting, Rich preached a message from Genesis 28 uh, a little bit out of order. So when I preached two weeks ago, I filled in the beginning of chapter 28, and today we'll bring chapter 28 to a close. I say all that because it's important that you know we're committed to preaching through the Bible without skipping over difficult passages and without cherry-picking passages from wherever we want just to bolster something we might want to say. We call that serial expository preaching. We exposit the texts and we take it in order, in series, through an entire book of the Bible, and then we choose another book and exposit that. Sermons that I have preached have always come naturally out of the text, and the texts that I have chosen have always been the next passage in line from where we were the last time or filling in gaps as needed. While I am praying the Lord is speaking through me, it's important that you know this is the next text in the order of the way the Holy Spirit has presented it. And what do we read today in the text? We read about Jacob making a vow before the Lord. Jacob, the one through whom the promises of God have been passed down from Abraham and through Isaac. Now, Jacob who we've noticed has been far more serious about the things of God than his brother Esau, now he has encountered God for himself, as we heard a few weeks ago. He didn't go on this journey looking for God. He went on this journey to find a wife from among his own people and to flee from the wrath of Esau, his brother. But now that he is the possessor of the promises of God, now God has shown up to him. So Jacob awakes from the dream he had in which God has promised him three things. First, he has passed on the land promise to Jacob that he had originally made to his grandfather Abraham. Likewise, he has also passed on to Jacob the promise of offspring. And third, God has promised that he will indeed bring Jacob back to this land of promise. So in response to this direct revelation from God to Jacob, this threefold promise... Jacob responds when he wakes up by making his own threefold vow back to God. Now, this threefold vow is a conditional vow. The vow Jacob makes is conditioned on God keeping his promises. But we know 
that God always keeps his promises. And when we begin to talk about direct application to our own lives today, let's note we must be very careful to distinguish between the clear promises of God on the one hand and the desires of our own hearts on the other hand. I'll come back to that later, but I wanted to introduce that concept now as we begin to talk about Jacob's vow, since Jacob conditioned his vow on a few very simple items. One, that God would be with him and guard him on his way. God would be with him and guard him on his way. Two, that God would give him food and clothing. God would give him food and clothing. And three, that God would bring him back again to his father's house in peace. God would bring him back again to his father's house in peace. Now, two of those three conditions could simply be seen as mere repeats of what God had just promised him. In verse 15, God told Jacob he would be with him and keep him and bring him back to that land. Jacob also adds that he wants to come back to his father's house in peace, and eventually that does happen, but not until many, many years later, after his mother has already died. But please note, as I said, that two of these three conditions of Jacob's vow are simply or very nearly that the Lord would keep the promises he's just made to him. Jacob's other condition was that the Lord would provide him food and clothing on this journey. So those were Jacob's conditions. The Lord would keep his promises he just gave him and that the Lord would provide him with food and clothing on that journey. And based on those conditions... Here was Jacob's threefold vow. First, Jacob said, If you will do these things, then Yahweh shall be my God. That is to say, Jacob will worship Yahweh as his own God, not merely the God of his father and grandfather, but as his own God. So Jacob's first response to God's direct revelation to him is to promise to worship him. Honestly, the greatest desire I have for you, for any of you, for all of you, is that I can show you enough of God, reveal enough of God to you through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, working through his word, read and preached and sung, that you also commit to worship God for yourself as your own God, not just the God of your parents or as the God of your friends or as my God, but that you would worship him as your God. That's my greatest desire for you. And that's what I pray for each and every one of you, that you would worship the Lord Almighty as your own God. And that means coming to God through his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Because as the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 verse 18, through him... We both, that is to say, both Jews and Gentiles, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus Christ is our access to the Father. And if you recall, that was what Rich preached to us on the verses immediately prior to this. Jesus identified himself to Nathaniel in John chapter 1 as Jacob's ladder, or God's ladder, as Rich put it, as the access way between heaven and earth, as the path to the Father himself. Despite what you may hear over and over in our pluralistic culture, there is only one way to God, and that is through Jacob's ladder, Jesus Christ. So I pray that you, like Jacob, would worship God as your own God. And because the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ, 
I pray that each and every one of you will submit his or her life to God through his son, Jesus. Second, Jacob vowed that that place and the stone he set up would become the house of God, which is what the name Bethel means, house of God. And and we will see that Jacob fulfilled this vow in chapter 35, verse 7, as Jacob was returning to this land many years later with his family, after he met Esau again for the first time since he had fled. Now, we know in our day, on this side of the cross and resurrection, that because we are to worship God through Jesus Christ, that we don't need to worship God by building altars and offering sacrifices on them. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, There will come a day, which has now come, when the true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth. And the Apostle Paul again clarifies for us, as he did for the Athenians on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. And Paul makes it clear in his presentation to them that what is needed is to repent, to repent of your sins and to place your faith and trust entirely in the God-man Jesus, the man by whom he has appointed to judge the world in righteousness, the man whom he raised from the dead. So again, if our response to the revelation of God is to respond like Jacob, then understanding what has taken place since the times of Jacob, we will worship God in spirit and in truth by repenting and placing our faith and trust completely in Jesus. So far, this all sounds very normal to our Christianized ears. Responding to the revelation of God means coming to God through Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Okay, but then we get to the third part of Jacob's vow, the end of verse 22. Of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Of all that you would give me, I will give a full tenth to you. I almost feel the need for a sound effect at this point. Like I should have prepared, I should have grabbed my phone and prepared the screeching sound of a, a needle being pulled up from a vinyl record. Maybe some of you are thinking, yeah, I hate it when you go to church and all they talk about is giving. That's why I explained I am only preaching the next passage in the order that it appears here. This is what God has revealed to us, and this is how Jacob responded. So we need to deal with it. Others of you, perhaps, maybe more of you than in the first group, are thinking, well, Jacob's version of worshiping God by building an altar has changed based on what's happened since the cross and the resurrection, and the same is probably true with this as well. Okay, well, let's talk about that in a little more detail. I'm aware that, just as in many other situations, if there is sanctification needed on this issue for some of you, the ones who need it the least will probably respond to it the best. That's almost always the case with any issue of sanctification. The ones who are the most sensitive to the Spirit working in their lives, who are the most obedient to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, calling them to obedience in any and every area— These are the ones who least need to hear the convicting word of admonishment or even rebuke. The ones who need to to hear it the most are usually the ones who disregard it the most. This is common in the church with any area of sanctification, as I said. So I'm praying that whoever among you needs to hear this the most 
that the Lord will convict you the most and you will receive it and act on the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Some of you have probably heard the word tithe before. It literally means a tenth. And the concept comes from scripture passages just like this one. In fact, this isn't the first mention of a tithe in scripture, but the second. We saw the concept back in chapter 14, verse 20, when Abram encountered Melchizedek after he had stolen Lot back from the kings that had taken him and carried him away with all the family and the goods that they had taken. At the time, in our walk through Genesis, there were some even more important items to talk about in that passage. So we didn't talk much about the tithe at that time, only to mention that Melchizedek was fulfilling some kind of superior role to Abram, since Abram was paying the tenth to him rather than the other way around. And we related Melchizedek's role to the priestly role Jesus Christ would take on after his ascension into heaven. We continue to see the concept of the tithe spelled out more fully in the later Mosaic law given to the nation of Israel, the descendants of this very Jacob. Take, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 14, which mentions tithing from all of their harvest year by year. And that the purpose of the tithe is to support the Levites, because the Levites were not offered an inheritance of the land the way the rest of the tribes were. And at the very end of the Old Testament, at least in our English versions, God spoke to Israel through the prophet Malachi that the children of Jacob were robbing God by withholding their tithes and offerings. You see that in Malachi chapter 3, robbing God. God. That's a pretty strong accusation. But as I said, many of you may be wondering, is tithing a concept that carries over into the New Testament? That's a reasonable question, because the only mention of tithes and tithing in the New Testament are either simple historical references to the Old Testament concept, as we find in the book of Hebrews, some of which references were specifically about Melchizedek, or they're examples given by or about legalistic figures, like the rich man who asked Jesus what he must do to be saved, or like the Pharisees, legalists who were either trying to justify themselves before Jesus or whom Jesus was rebuking, as in Luke chapter 11, for caring more about tithing than about weightier matters of the law, like justice and the love of God. So at least at first glance, it's not unreasonable to wonder whether tithing is a legitimate New Testament concept. But let's dig a little further. You're correct that the tithe is never specifically commanded in the New Testament era. Although Jesus did tell those legalistic Pharisees in Luke 11 that they should have continued to tithe without neglecting those other weightier matters. But realistically, here's a question I think we can legitimately ask of ourselves Does Jesus require more of the New Testament church or less of the New Testament church than was required of the Jews in the Old Testament? Does he require more of the New Testament saints than he did of the Old Testament Jews? I think we can pretty confidently answer that the pattern we see in the New Testament is that more is clearly expected of New Testament saints than had been clearly laid out for the Jews under the law of Moses. Just look at the Sermon on the Mount. The Mosaic Law contains the command, for example, not to kill. 
But Jesus said, if you have anger in your heart toward your brother, you've actually committed murder in your heart. That same Mosaic law also contains the command not to commit adultery. But Jesus said, if you look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Now, this is not the time or the place to try to give an entire theology of the Sermon on the Mount, but I will say I don't think Jesus was actually upping the ante, so to speak. He wasn't declaring that more was actually expected. What he was doing was clarifying the intent that had been behind those commands all along. So the intent behind them was more than just the mere prohibition contained in the words of the Old Testament commands. And if you were to add up, for example, all of the offerings and tithes expected of the Jews throughout the entire law of Moses, what you actually come up with is that even the poorest Israelite was required to give back to God about 23% of his income. 23%. That's more than twice a tithe. That's two-tenths plus another 3%, even for the poorest of Israelites. So sure, we can say that tithing is not explicitly commanded in the New Testament, but but what are we really saying if we say that? To be perfectly honest, can we expect that God expects less of us now than he expected of even the poorest of the Israelites? In fact, what the New Testament seems to indicate is actually that God expects everything of us back in return. God lays claim to everything that you are and everything that you have been given. Jesus told that rich man who said he had kept the commandments, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus also said more generally in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth, neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And as an overall statement, a catch-all, a generalization, Jesus reminded us that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. How much of your wallet or your pocketbook do you think that entails? In fact, it's been said, a look through your checkbook, or these days, maybe your credit card ledger, shows someone most of what they need to know about your commitment to Christ. Now, I'm just going to be giving some very general principles here at the end of this message. I'm not going to get into the specific details of, for example, our church finances. That's for another time and another setting. And I hope to do that soon with you as a church. But I want to lay out for you a couple things that, if we want to apply today's text to us, these are things we can keep in mind. First of all, look at what Jacob asked for beyond what God had promised him. Jacob asked for the Lord to provide him with food and clothing. That is a pretty basic request. I mean, we're talking base sustenance level. That was his extra request from God beyond what God had already promised him. And we absolutely see the same kind of sentiment in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 6, which Larry read for you earlier, we see Paul tell us almost exactly the same thing. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8. Godliness with contentment 
is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. That sounds awfully similar to Jacob's extra request, doesn't it? Friends, every single one of us here, even whoever may be the poorest person hearing this right now, has probably rarely ever struggled in life to have food and clothing. The reality is, because most of us have spent nearly our entire lives living in the richly blessed nation that we live in, we truly have, through no fault of our own, a skewed sense of how most of the rest of humanity has lived throughout the world and throughout history, even most of the rest of the church. We live in a nation that has been blessed with tremendous prosperity. And the question is, what has God called us to do with our prosperity? Well, the very first thing I would say that we need to consider in your worship of God is that you had better be forthright and honest with yourselves and in your families that, as it says in Deuteronomy 8.18, which also you heard earlier, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Your prosperity at a foundational level depends on God himself. Now, I'm not saying that you've sat back and done nothing. Most of you have worked, and many of you worked quite hard to earn what you have now and what you've had in the past. But even still, it is the Lord who has given you the power to get that wealth. Without him, without him blessing you with the talents and the physical and mental abilities that you have, without him presenting opportunities for you to learn and develop skills that you could turn into income-generating work, without him even placing you in this nation with so much opportunity, despite how things are currently trending, without the Lord doing all this in your lives and more, you could be just like most of the rest of the humanity throughout the world and throughout history, wondering if you would be able to find enough food to survive until the next day, when you would begin the same fight all over again, day after day after day after day. And only because of him are we not all walking around in threadbare rags. I'm reminded of one of the very old episodes, by now, of the animated show The Simpsons, where the family's sitting down to eat and young Bart Simpson is asked to say grace. Here's Bart's prayer. Dear God, we pay for all this stuff, so thanks for nothing. Now, that may be the way a lot of atheists think, and I know most Christians would never say that sort of thing out loud and probably aren't really thinking that last part, but how many of us are truly thankful that the Lord has given us the abilities we have? to pay for all this stuff ourselves? How many of us truly give thanks that the Lord has put us in a place where we have such an abundance, we rarely, if ever, miss a meal? And if we do, it's not because we couldn't find any food to eat. And I bring all this up to remind us about what Jacob vowed before the Lord, that he would give back to God a tenth of everything the Lord gave him. I'll give this general principle that if you're not giving back to God in some fashion at least a tenth of what he's giving you, I do believe you are robbing God. If God expected even the poorest of the Israelites to give back to him about 23%, is 10% really that hard for you? This sermon series, ever since the beginning of Genesis, has been titled, The Why of Life. 
If you want to know why things always seem to be going wrong in your life, especially in terms of your finances, perhaps part of what you should be examining in your life is whether or not you've been robbing God. Have you been hoarding what he's abundantly given to you, spending it all on your own pleasures and conveniences? Have you been considering yourself an owner of what God has given you, rather than what we all really are, which is a steward, the one God has put in charge of managing and distributing such abundance. Now, I haven't said anything specific in this message about what it means to give back to God, and that's intentional. Are we talking about giving to the church, or giving to parachurch ministries, or giving to the poor, or all of the above, or something else even entirely? Frankly, again, I think that's a topic for another day. The first thing you need to ask yourselves is if you can honestly look God in the face and say you're acknowledging that he is the actual source of your wealth, your abundance. And by acknowledging it, I mean that you are stewarding it where you have the ability to steward. Now, I am painfully aware that the name-it-and-claim-it preachers in our culture have abused Deuteronomy 8.18 to no end, insisting that the verse, that that verse says that the Lord has given everyone power to get wealthy, and if you're not wealthy, you're doing something wrong. But as you heard the context of that passage, you know that's not the point at all. The point is that when you get into a place of wealth, which, again, when it comes to most of humanity throughout the world and throughout history— Pretty much everyone here falls into that category of wealthy, some more than others. When you get into that place, you had better not forget that it's the Lord who put you there. And the clear, not just implication, but actual statement in that verse is that if you forget that and go search after worshiping other idols like wealth and comfort and ease and self-sufficiency, God says he can take it away again through any number of means. As Job said, as he was losing everything he had, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We don't, frankly, like to talk about this in the American church. Partly that's because of, again, the prosperity preachers who have so abused the concept of giving because of their own greed I believe it mentions in Proverbs 20, it talks about the one who heaps up and sees, or maybe it was in 1 Timothy 6 that we read, where people see godliness as a means to gain. Uh, We've seen that, we've experienced that in the church culture. It's a detriment, it's it's a blight on the church. And also because of atheist Marxists in our culture who are constantly trying to control what God has given you for their own agenda. I'm not trying to minimize those negative influences. But in 2 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul actually explains in some detail that God does expect his people, the church, to take care of each other's needs. And the scripture actually uses words like equality and fairness. In 2 Corinthians 8, verses 13 through 14, Paul writes... For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. 
He's speaking about within the church, among believers, that those in the church with abundance should share with those in the church who have need, because God has made you a steward of those resources, not an owner. And you may not always have the abundance you have now. I can tell you first firsthand, we experienced this kind of abundant generosity last week on our own trip down to Nashville and back. Because although we stayed in the house of friends in one location, it was also Christian brothers and sisters from other fire churches in other cities, people we'd never met and had no prior connection with other than being churches in the same association who housed us and sometimes even fed us as well. That was a true blessing to us this past week. Now again, I understand that sometimes people in the church are suffering partly because they've been robbing God and partly for other reasons. And if that's the case, they need to be taught as well. I also need to mention this one thing. I'm well aware that there's a popular Christian finance program that discourages tithing and giving if you're in debt. And I could tell you there are many aspects of that program I highly appreciate. Most Americans need to learn a great deal of restraint when it comes to their spending habits and willingness to go deeply into debt over the most frivolous of things. But I wholeheartedly disagree, wholeheartedly disagree with the teaching that you can and should only start tithing and giving to God once you've gotten yourself out of debt and built up substantial wealth. I frankly believe that most people will never get to that point because they're trying to do so outside of the Lord's blessing and outside of his command. They're still robbing God as they try to manage their finances under their own power and in their own strength. Friends, you need the Lord to bless your efforts as you wage war against materialistic comfort and excess in your own hearts and lives. And the best way of doing that is by making giving back to the Lord a habit from the very beginning, from the outset of your attempts to rein in your spending. Even from the beginning of your children's lives, train them to give back to the Lord from everything they receive and earn. Make it a habit in their lives from the outset. If you don't make that a habit when it's hard, the strong likelihood is that you'll always be able to find a reason why you shouldn't. In your mind, enough is never enough. That's a scriptural truth as well. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. If that's your love, you'll never believe you have enough to give back to God or to anyone else. I'll have more to say about this soon in a more specific context, and I also want to make available in the near future to everyone in the church a copy of this little book, which changed my entire outlook on this topic about 17 years ago, Randy Alcorn's The Treasure Principle. For those of you who have been responding to God in this matter diligently, I pray the Lord continues to richly bless you for stewarding his resources wisely and that he blesses you further with further resources to steward and further sanctification in every area of your life. And may the Lord do that with all of us. Let's pray. Father, you have indeed richly blessed us, not only with every blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But for so many of us, we have been blessed beyond measure materially as well. 
And we know that your word says that you give us all good things to enjoy. And so let us not take this word to believe that we can never enjoy anything you have given us, but simply to recall that you are the source of the abundance and we have been given abundance to steward, not to squander. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, let us continue to practice unity among the church by celebrating the very act of unity that the Lord gave to his church, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We will celebrate his death on our behalf, his obedient life on our behalf, his resurrection for our justification, and his ascension into heaven for his intercession on our behalf.